This is Ron Stockton. I have a new two-part podcast on Gandhi. I'm sorry, but neither focuses upon Gandhi's fascinating life. Part one focuses upon his famous concept of Satyagraha, also called soul force. It is his concept of nonviolent resistance. I think it's not well understood, and maybe this discussion will help. Part two focuses upon the person who assassinated Gandhi, especially the statement he delivered in court explaining why he did what he did. For those of you who are admirers of Gandhi, that will probably include most of you, the fact that his assassin sounds logical and rational will come as a shock. During my career, I taught a class on non-Western politics, which had a unit on leadership. I used several different personalities to illustrate the variety of leadership styles. We discussed Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, Chief Nanga, hero of Chinua Achebe's novel Man of the People, Sultan Qaboos, the modernizing leader of Oman, and Gandhi. My lectures on Gandhi relied heavily upon that wonderful book, The Modernity of Tradition, by Rudolf and Rudolf, which students read. It came out in 1967 when I was just beginning my graduate program. It was an instant classic. The Rudolphs were academic experts on Gandhi and on Indian politics. They spent every summer in India updating their research. Suzanne was a political scientist, once the president of the American Political Science Association. Lloyd was an anthropologist. They were consultants on the Academy Award-winning film Gandhi, which I had students watch. I also had students read excerpts from Gandhi's essays, which he published on a regular basis in his newspaper. From those sources, as well as others, I extracted what seemed to be the key components of Gandhi's philosophy. Gandhi believed that Indians had been psychologically colonized by 200 years of British rule. This is a theme that others had also observed about what happened to people under foreign rule. Franz Fanon discussed it for non-white people in general, as did Steve Biko of South Africa and Malcolm X and James Baldwin in the United States and Ngugi Wationgo of Kenya. I remember a conversation with the son of a Kenya Mau leader. His father was one of the key leaders of the uprising against the British. He said that uprising had been planned in his living room. He said to me, I will be honest with you. When we started this, we were not certain it was the right thing. The British appeared to know what they were doing, and we had no experience. Maybe it would be better just to let them stay in power and work with them. Gandhi tried to break out of this psychological captivity by what we might call assimilation. He went to Britain, dressed like an Englishman, graduated from law school, and learned perfect English. Should this not be enough to be treated as an equal? But as he learned, it was not. In an incident depicted in the film, he was kicked off a train when he tried to use his first-class ticket. He, quote, met the dust of the Orange Free State, unquote, as someone observed. So, what alternative strategy would work? What about physical training, such as judo or taekwondo? Would that build up confidence? Other people turn to meat-eating. That sounds strange to us, but to a people who were vegetarians and their rulers were meat-eaters, maybe eating meat would make them stronger. Perhaps enrolling in the military would help. Gandhi became a recruiter during World War I. 
and some people turn to violence. Terrorism and armed resistance might work. And what about sleeping with white prostitutes? Maybe that would build up one's confidence. General China, one of the two key leaders of the Kenya Mau Mau uprising in the 1950s, wrote in his memoir that the Kenyans who served in Italy had killed white men and slept with white women, and they were not willing to return to the status quo. Eldridge Cleaver, a black nationalist in the 1960s, even talked about the rape of a white woman as a liberation. Ugh. Uh, just for the record, Cleaver later apologized for writing that. Gandhi considered several of these, never rape or murder, but rejected them all. He thought that the ultimate struggle was not between peoples, but within individuals. He told his followers that they had to find inner strength. Without inner strength, you could never win your struggle. With it, you could face down your oppressor. Rudolf and Rudolf do an excellent job of discussing the cultural circumstances that shaped Gandhi's thinking. That is not the focus of this podcast, but I do want to mention one incident that Gandhi himself discussed in his public writings to illustrate the point. When he was a boy, Gandhi had a Muslim friend. One day he invited the boy to come home with him for dinner. When they arrived, Gandhi's father refused to let him stay. The religious cultural boundaries were too great even to share a meal. Gandhi recognized what had happened. He decided to engage in a protest. But it was not a protest that involved a challenge to his father. That would have been wrong. His protest involved self-imposed suffering. Everyone knew that Gandhi loved mangoes. It was his favorite fruit. The incident occurred during mango season, and he announced that he would go a whole year without eating mangoes. He accepted his father's decision, but made it clear he did not accept its moral legitimacy. That is just one example of a tradition that influenced Gandhi's subsequent strategy of Satyagraha, and of how he used nonviolent protest to fight injustice. Gandhi was influenced by several non-Indian traditions. He was influenced by the teachings of Jesus, by the teachings of Thoreau, by Quaker teachings, and by Hegel. Wait, Hegel? Uh, yes, Hegel. Hegel, who also influenced Martin Luther King, emphasized the concept of the dialectic. Put simply, he said that a force generated its opposite. This meant that two forces in conflict were, in a sense, the same force, just opposite versions. The dark side and the light side have core elements that are similar. Hegel said that in time, there would be a synthesis, a blending of the two forces and a reduction of tension. Gandhi said if you attack your opposite, it will grow stronger. Okay, before we turn to Satyagraha itself, let me clarify three concepts. One is nonviolence. Gandhi was definitely nonviolent. The second is pacifism. Gandhi was a pacifist, if by that you mean nonviolent, but he was not passive. He did not believe that you could be passive in the face of injustice. That leads to the third concept, assertive, nonviolent resistance. That is where Gandhi was, assertive, resistance, nonviolent. Let's look at 10 key principles in his philosophy as I extracted them. First, you are obligated to oppose evil. You may not walk away. To borrow from John Knox, when you stand before God, it will not serve you, dear brother, to say, I was just a private citizen, I could do nothing. 
Gandhi said, in the face of injustice, you have to do something. Second, in a conflict, both sides are partially right and partially wrong. I have to tell you that is not an easy consideration when you're in the middle of a conflict. As I'm speaking now, there's a terrible war going on between Russia and Ukraine. I know which side I'm on, and it is not with the Russian army. And yet, Russia has legitimate security interests on its western border. They have been invaded twice from the West in the past century. World War II cost them 20 million lives. When we from the NATO alliance began putting missiles and forces into those former Soviet states, all the, while, all the while saying they were there for peace, not war, there was not a single person in the Kremlin who believed us. And when we began meddling in the politics of Ukraine, even if they did have a corrupt government, we certainly raised the stakes. Is Putin right in his invasion of Ukraine? Definitely not. But was the West right in thinking of bringing Ukraine, and with it Crimea, where the Russian Black Sea fleet is based, into NATO? Ah, uh, let's hesitate before we answer. Maybe we're not perfectly innocent in this conflict. And if you're interested, by the way, I have a podcast on that topic. Third, Gandhi says we need to recognize that within any individual or group, there are good and, and evil elements. Wait, does that mean there were good elements within the Taliban? Well, we ended up negotiating with the so-called moderate Taliban. They were not my ideal model of partners, but they were willing to negotiate with us, and we with them. Fourth, and here's a tough one, you can only control your own actions, not those of others. If you focus upon the flaws and actions of others, you will definitely make matters worse. As Calvin wrote in the 1500s about the Ten Commandments, if you emphasize only the flaws of another person and overlook their good qualities, that constitutes bearing false witness, even if all the flaws are truly there. 5. If someone attacks you, consider the possibility that your actions may be partially responsible. Okay, I can hear you, but, 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 I know what you're thinking. But look what that person did, or they hit me first. No parent would accept that argument, but he hit me first. I can hear your mom. I'm sure he did, but what did you do before he hit you? That question is usually followed by silence. When I taught my class on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I told my students on the first day that our goal was not to choose sides. To really understand this conflict, they would have to learn to see themselves doing every single thing we would encounter during the semester, even if they were if they were in the position of the individual who committed that action or thought that way. If they could not do that, they were not thinking deeply enough. And if they were reacting to something with moral outrage, they were not only dehumanizing another person, but dehumanizing themselves. This became one of my rules of good studenting. There's a podcast on that topic if you're interested. So when a Palestinian straps a bomb onto himself and goes into a pizza parlor and blows up people, we're shocked. But can you say for certain, for certain, that if you had experienced what that young man had experienced, you would not be capable of doing the same thing? If your brother had been killed your grandmother knocked to the ground by an Israeli soldier, your other brother snatched from your living room and taken to a prison without any charges being listed, your home blown up, 
Are you sure? And when an Israeli soldier shoots a 12-year-old who had just thrown a rock, we're shocked. Are you sure you would not do the same thing if your best friend had been killed the day before? Or if your sister had been blinded by a rock? Are you sure you would not do the same thing? Be careful with how you answer. This leads to point six. All humans are morally interchangeable. Potential saints and potential Nazis. We can feel grief that someone has not lived up to their potential, but we cannot feel pride in our own lack of failure. Who knows what we will do tomorrow and feel that we did the right thing. The Latin American theologian Gustavo Gutierrez noted that in the Bible, every single conflict where the poor and oppressed are in a struggle with the rich and the powerful, God sides with the poor. But he warns us, the poor are not always the good. Sometimes they have forces within themselves that lead them to evil actions, as each of you and I have within ourselves. 7. If you win a conflict by defeating an enemy, but leave the enemy's hatred in place, you have lost, for you have lost a friend. I remember I had a conversation with a Palestinian peace activist. His name was Mubarak Awad. He said to me, next week I'm flying to Jerusalem. When I get to the security desk, there will be a young Israeli there. He will say to me, passport. I will say to him, how are you doing? He will say, passport, and I will say to him, how's your day going? This will continue until he says, fine. Then I will ask him, how's your family? Again, he will ask for my passport. This will go on until he says, my family is fine, passport, please. Then I will give him my passport. That man will be very afraid of me. He suspects I am a monster, a terrorist. He thinks I may want to kill his family. I'm not willing to leave him in that state to let him treat me or himself as if we are enemies. He has the right to ask for my passport, which I'm willing to show him. But I will not let him view me as an enemy. If I did, I would be contributing to the problem. That's very Gandhian, which he recognized, by the way. Point eight, your greatest enemy is yourself. Your own anger, selfishness, fear, self-righteousness, and indifference can destroy you. There's an interesting hadith, a story, from the life of Muhammad. His army had just won a battle that they might have lost. The men were very excited. They were slapping high fives or whatever it was that Arab soldiers did to celebrate in those days. Muhammad silenced them. He used the word jihad, which means battle, but also struggle. He said, you have just won the lesser jihad, your battle against your enemies. But you still have to win the greater jihad your struggle against your own pride and arrogance and tendency to sin. Number nine. I hate to say it, but I'm going to quote Richard Nixon in his farewell speech to the nation when he resigned. What he said was, if you dwell on the actions of others, you will become what you hate. Hatred is the most destructive of forces. It stands in the way of our humanity. Point ten appears to be almost a response to point nine. You should act for something, not against. Acting negatively lets others define you, and you lose control of your own destiny. I remember when one of my pastors said in a sermon, I'm not interested in what you oppose. Tell me what you favor. 
what you want to achieve. The minister did not necessarily realize it, but that was a very Gandhian statement. Let's consider some examples. In one very controversial statement during the Nazi era, when Jews were being rounded up, Gandhi suggested that the Jews in various towns should turn themselves in, march down to the city hall and say, we understand that you are locking up our people, here we are. He was renounced by the Jewish leadership for that statement. They said, your tactics of nonviolent resistance might work with the British, who are civilized, but they will not work with the Nazis. I've heard this more than once, that the British had civilized colonial rule. The people of India and Kenya would surely disagree. But let's leave that debate and turn to two facts that cannot be disputed regarding Gandhi's advice. First, we know Gandhi would have done that himself. He would have turned himself in. He would not suggest something to another person that he would not apply to himself. Gandhi was not a German and he was not a Jew, but he was definitely not a hypocrite, engaging in what the Rudolphs call the hubris of those not involved. He may or may not have been right, but he was serious and sincere in his suggestion. Second, given what was happening to the Jews in Germany, and it's hard to imagine that the outcome would have been worse than it already was. After all, six million Jews were ultimately killed. Moreover, we know that the Nazis were nervous about riling up German public opinion. Consider some facts. When the Nazis created euthanasia policies to exterminate mentally disabled children and adults, they were forced to back off in the face of public protests. And when the Nazis locked up the Jewish husbands of German wives, the wives marched down to the police station in Berlin where they were being held and demanded that their husbands be released. Interestingly, the authorities released those husbands. They did not want public demonstrations against their policies. And third, they bent over backwards to conceal what they were doing. They created false stories that the Jews were being shipped off to resettlement camps in the east. The Jews were often taken away in the middle of the night, so when Germans looked out, their Jewish neighbors or classmates were simply gone. They did not see them taken away. And they even created films to show that the Jews were living in pleasant circumstances with cafes. The Nazis were definitely afraid of what we might call public opinion. Would those public surrenders have made a difference? Who knows? But Gandhi considered public surrender an alternative that might have shamed the Germans and produced a different outcome. He believed that inside the German people, there were positive forces. A second example occurred in 1986 when Bishop Tutu stood outside the Episcopal Cathedral in Cape Town to speak to a rally of 30,000 people, many of them young. This was during the era of apartheid when white people ruled the country. It was here that he coined the term, we are the rainbow people, the new South Africa. Tutu said, the souls of those killed cry out, how long, Lord, is this going to continue? The answer is, the time is not right until some more of you, brothers and sisters, are killed. The price we have paid already is a heavy price. We are being called on to pay yet more in lives. But despite all that the powers of the world may do, we are going to be free. They marched to the city hall, beginning the movement that ultimately brought down the regime. For sure, there was a lot of armed fighting, but those mass demonstrations made a difference. 
Social and political forces often determine historical outcomes, but South Africa is a case where two individuals made a difference in what happened after. The regime agreed to majority rule. Without Bishop Tutu as the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Nelson Mandela as president of the country, the outcome might have been terrifying. Black people wanted, and some thought deserved, vengeance. But Tutu said that public confession and revealing what happened would contribute more to healing than punishment. If a person acknowledged what they had done, they could have their punishment waived, so long as they acted out of political motives, not personal or criminal motives. Perhaps knowing what happened to your son or husband would bring more peace to a surviving relative than seeing the person who killed him in prison. Some years after majority rule, I was in Stellenbosch, near Cape Town. This was a city that was dominated by Afrikaners, the former ruling people of the country. Now there was a black majority in Parliament, and black officials in most positions. There was also a lot of crime and a lot of fear. If you're interested, by the way, J.M. Kutsia's award-winning novel, Disgrace, is set in those days. It's quite an amazing novel. I went to an Afrikaner religious service one Sunday. My friend translated the sermon for me. The dominee, the minister, addressed the matter of violence and fear. He said to his all-white congregation, Perhaps you have been robbed or attacked. Even if not, you are afraid. I know that some of you are thinking about leaving South Africa and moving to another country. As Christians, you are not allowed to do this. You are obligated to reach out to your black neighbors, even if you fear them. You do not know what they experienced. And you need to reflect upon what your own fears are telling you. Detachment and withdrawal are not permitted for the Christian. You must avoid the sin of innocence, as if all problems rest with other people. We white people have contributed to this situation, and we are obligated to work to resolve it. I will admit that I found that a stunning sermon. Gandhi might well have delivered it. Let's look at the Bible for a minute and see what it says. When God asked Cain about his brother's whereabouts, Cain asked rhetorically, Am I my brother's keeper? There's no indication that God considered that question worth a response. Of course you are. In Proverbs, there is a warning. Rejoice not when your enemy has fallen. Of course, it was hard for an American not to rejoice when Osama bin Laden was killed. But I do remember a grieving father who had lost his son in the September 11th attacks. He said, I'm not happy that he's dead, but I'm happy that he cannot hurt anyone else. And what about those teachings by Jesus to walk the second mile or turn the other cheek? There's an amazing story about that latter teaching from the story of Jackie Robinson. When Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, interviewed Jackie Robinson about bringing him up to the majors as the first black player, he reviewed with Jackie the importance of what was to come. Everyone is going to be watching you. Many will hope you fail. If you react the way any other player reacts, you will make it difficult to bring up other black players. Tell me, Jackie, when someone smashes into you and knocks you down, what will you do? I will get up and brush off the dust and play my game. And Jackie, if someone comes at you with cleats high, what will you do? I will play my game. And Jackie, 
What will you do if someone slaps you in the face and calls you that word? I'm not going to say it here, but you know the one I'm talking about. Before I tell you Jackie's response, I have to explain that Jackie was a race man. He would never tolerate anyone abusing him or any other black person. He had been court-martialed in his service for talking back to an officer who insulted him. Jackie was not a gentle soul where race was concerned. Hence, the stunning answer he gave. Mr. Ricky, I have two cheeks. You might reasonably ask, how do I know Jackie's response? Because I saw it in the film, The Jackie Robinson Story, starring Jackie Robinson. And if you haven't seen the more recent film, 42, do yourself a favor and watch it. It's quite wonderful. Let me finish up with one final teaching. It is from St. Paul in the book of Ephesians. Be angry, but do not sin. I think Gandhi might have added that you are not allowed not to be angry. If you are not upset at racial injustice in this wonderful country of ours, or of verbal and ideological attacks on LGBTQ people, then you need to reassess your values. Thanks for listening. And I hope you will listen to part two of this podcast. It is entitled, Why I Killed Gandhi. It will be posted in maybe two weeks.